From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Thanks for being with us. Bruce Claggett in the chair for Jill Bennett this afternoon. You likely heard this in the news at the top of the hour. At least a dozen cases of salmonella in our province. And across the country, one person has died now. And you got 63 confirmed cases. That's as of the weekend. All linked to this salmonella outbreak involving a couple brands of cantaloupe and some fruit plates associated with that. So that begs the obvious question, just how worried should we be about this? I mean, it's 2023, and are we still kind of afraid of salmonella in our food, in our food chair? Well, Brian Coombs is a researcher, a professor and chair of the Department of Biochemistry and Biomedical Sciences at McMaster University. Obvious question for Brian, what is salmonella and how worried should we be? So salmonella is a bacteria, and it's not unlike, you know, the kinds of bacteria we, we often have in our, in our guts at any given time. Um, for example, it's very, it's very similar to E. coli, which everyone I think is mostly familiar with, and we, we have some E. coli living in our GI tracts, which are very harmless. Salmonella is like the big bad cousin of E. coli, and the reason why it's been linked to um, outbreaks and has been sort of dubbed a pathogen is because it has very sophisticated ways to evade our body's natural defense systems. So our bodies do a very good job of controlling not only bacteria, but also viruses and other fungi that we come in contact with every single day. Probably hundreds of times a day, we come in contact with things that we want to try and exclude from our bodies, different types of microbes. And our immune system works in the background without us even knowing it to keep us safe. However, salmonella has evolved to evade those host defense systems. And so when we do come in contact with it, it does a very good job of outsmarting our immune system and getting into places in our bodies where it's not supposed to be, causing inflammation and then causing the symptoms that we associate with the disease. So for the vast majority of us, obviously, this is not a problem, has not been a problem. Yet we have at least 26 lab-confirmed cases, BC, Ontario, Quebec, Prince Edward Island, Newfoundland, Labrador. Um, So what happened there? Is there anything that people can be doing that's different to protect themselves? I mean, I think that in this particular case, and and with many, many types of foodborne outbreaks, it's very difficult to know, know beforehand that what you're eating is contaminated with bacteria. Keep in mind, you know, the bacteria that we're talking about that cause outbreaks like salmonella and pathogenic E. coli, for example, they can cause disease in someone with as few as 50 bacterial cells. And so there's, it would be impossible, even with the most sophisticated molecular type of tests, to detect 50 cells. And so certainly, you know, we can't detect it. We can't see it. We can't smell it. The food looks fine. The food tastes fine. It smells fine. And so it's impossible to know beforehand that what you're eating is contaminated. So, you know, when these outbreaks start, it's a little bit of bad luck in the people that, you know, initially get infected. And then it's up to folks from the Public Health Agency of Canada to try and, you know, quickly identify what could be happening, sequence the genomes of the bacteria that are making people sick and trying to, and try to figure out if it's the same strain across the country that's causing the, the, the disease. <clears throat> 
and then trying to interview people and figure out what's common about all these people. What did they eat that was common that might be the, the, um, the source of this outbreak? And in, in this, this case, ca- I think they interviewed, you know, 30-odd people, and, and the vast majority of them had reported eating cantaloupe. And so this particular outbreak is probably linked to cantaloupe and, and potentially other kinds of food products that got sort of mixed in with cantaloupe in, you know, processed food. If you, you know, purchased a fruit tray, for example, um, that has cantaloupe and other fruits in it, it might be other fruits that could be cross-contaminated that um, could be making somebody sick. Getting it from the cantaloupe. We know for sure that this did start with one brand of cantaloupe, and uh, now we're seeing it, as you mentioned, in fruit salads, fruit trays, and a couple yes. others. Um, are fruits more susceptible than other foods, or are we looking at this being possibly something that could turn up in almost any produce? I mean, it could turn up in any produce, really. And, and salmonella breaks have been linked to all kinds of food products, ranging from dog food to peanut butter to sprouts to fruits and vegetables and, and other kinds of meat, chicken. Um, you can, it, it's, it's indiscriminate that way. I mean, it can contaminate any kind of food product. I think fruits and vegetables are particularly um, problematic in a way with, with salmonella infections because they're foods that we, you know, we, we tend to like to eat raw. I mean, we like to eat our fruits raw, and many people eat vegetables raw as well. And so, you know, the cooking process, for example, with meat and like in, in chicken in particular with salmonella, the cooking process, you know, if there are trace amounts of contaminating bacteria, the cooking process kills, you know, contamination quite quite effectively. Fruits and vegetables are things that we often don't cook. And so, you know, the best we can do is wash them. <clears throat> and in this case, really, we, we wash the surface. And I think, you know, the, the links to cantaloupe, um, oftentimes people overlook, you know, when they bring a whole cantaloupe home, for example, from the grocery store, they just start cutting into it right away. We tend not to um, you know, we forget that we should probably wash even the rind, even though we're not going to eat that part. People, you know, tend to not wash the part that you're not going to eat. And so, but even if the rind is contaminated, you know, the cutting process, slicing into it can contaminate the fruit part underneath that you will eat. So it is important to, you know, handle food properly and use good food hygiene um, at home. Going forward, is there anything that we're going to end up uh, learning that can make salmonella in our food not even a uh, possibility? Is there any technology or any new standards that may come around? I mean, there's there's some interesting work actually going on at McMaster University where I work, where I'm based out of, it's in, in Hamilton, Ontario, where people are developing, you know, almost like um, paper strips, like dipstick type of diagnostics that you know you could put on a food product that would identify whether there's it's contaminated with a certain type of bacteria those are not really ready for prime time commercial use but the the research and development behind it is actually quite advanced so i do think there will be um you know interesting innovations down the road for example in 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 packaging um you know we sometimes if we buy like meat for example there's, you know, it's, it's set in a styrofoam tray and there's cellophane on top and, and there's an absorbent pad. And so all that packaging could have built-in detectors that could detect um, bacterial contaminants. And that's some of the research that's actually happening. I that, think to, yeah. you know, the other, the other point I'll make is that I, and it's, it's evident in this outbreak, um, our food distribution network is quite vast now. I mean, it used to be, you know, probably 100 years ago that you only ate locally. You only ate the things that 
you were either growing yourself or you could get in your, you know, small geographical neighborhood. Now, um, you know, people can buy food from the grocery store and it's sometimes very difficult to know where exactly it came from. Sometimes you'll know originally where it came from, but it's sometimes grown somewhere, packaged somewhere different, handled somewhere different before it even gets to your grocery store. It could have gone through, you know, three or four different handling steps before it even gets to you. And so I think that's a problem too. And, you know, people could even buy food over the internet and have it shipped to their house. And so it makes it quite difficult in these cases to try and pinpoint what the source is because it's very geographically distributed all over the place, all over the country. It's all through the United States as well. So I think, you know, the way that we acquire food now is, is in part to blame. The research that you're doing at uh, McMaster sounds fascinating. Well, the McMaster University runs a website called The Daily News, and it's, it's updated on a daily basis, obviously. Um, it's kind of the landing page for the university, and there's research highlights there. So if someone went to McMaster Daily News and searched through some of the more recent, uh, I think there's even a search function there to, to help them you know, focus a search onto a certain topic, I'm sure they would find something there because it's been reported in our data. Jill was backfilling earlier today, so I'm Bruce Claggett in the chair for her. Hey, we're learning that Facebook parent Meta deliberately engineered its social platforms to hook kids and knew but never disclosed it had millions of complaints about underage users on Instagram, but only disabled a fraction of those accounts, all this being outlined in the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times. Wow, but is that really a surprise? Well, let's bring in social media expert, uh, social media educator at MediaReality.com. That's MediatedReality.com, Jesse Miller. Jesse, thanks for joining us again. Um, You know, I think we heard hints about this, but this is a new report that's out. Are you surprised? Not at all, uh, Bruce. We know, obviously, when you have court uh, processes, there's going to be internal documents and uh, content that comes up that obviously gets traded in a, in a boardroom, but doesn't necessarily become public fodder. But we've known that Meta, as the parent company of Instagram, have struggled with age gating, uh, issues around uh, bullying and harassment of youth online, also targeted behaviors. But to know that parts of the the, the organization, um, you know, has leaned into uh, preying on how children will be more adept at using the platform, but also at the same time more vulnerable. Uh, to see it in paper is, is not surprising, but it is something that now we can put into a bit more of a conversation piece of what, re- what does reg- regulation have to look like moving forward. And what does it have to look like moving forward? What are we going to do about this? Because this is not the first time we're hearing of these uh, sort of allegations. Yeah, so interestingly enough, I mean, age gating on the platform can be difficult because you don't have to verify your age. You can just sign in and you can say that you're over 13. But what Facebook and Meta have done is they basically, over the past 20 years, have said that if the app itself is regulated by the app store, then you should have to have parental supervision to download the app. And that puts the onus on parents to say, hey, if you're downloading Facebook from the Apple uh, app store, you have to verify this as the parent. And I think that's kind of similar to the idea of what we look at with controlled substances is that the onus goes on to the, the, the store purveyor to make sure that they're checking for ID. Nobody's checking for ID in this space when it comes to a minor child. 
So we do need some form of regulation of age gating, but that goes into the larger picture of how do you then regulate the Internet when it comes to online voices. So should the more vulnerable be regulated versus all of us who are 18 getting the ability to make these anonymous accounts and do whatever we want online? So for young people, we should see better platforms that are developed that don't prey on them, that don't go to the idea of their uh, impulse control and whether or not they're just going to skim through, but also really identifying issues that youth face. And uh, unfortunately, today we're seeing a story to Prince George with a 12-year-old who's taken their life due to a sextortion issue. And again, if that happens on Instagram or Snapchat or whatever the platform, that's not the issue. It's whether or not the child is using the, the tool in the safest way possible, which has oversight and safe tools. As parents, we often hear these stories and hear us discussing this and become a little, probably rightfully, disturbed and concerned. What is the role of the parent in this and what should uh, they be telling their kids? Well, lead by example. The majority of children use these social media platforms because they grew up watching parents use them. In fact, children were shared on these platforms, majority of them without their consent by their parents who took pictures of them and put them online for others to see. So that's part of our culture. But within that, as children get to the point where they start messaging or using the platforms, I don't care if it's school-based, if it's sports-based, any child who's taking the lead and saying, hey, I'll add you to Instagram, I'll sit there and message you in this group chat, they are doing something that's comfortable in their home, and it might not meet what's congruent with another child's home. So the values of one home have to be kind of the the starting point. And so for as the parents, you're sitting down, you're saying, here's what's important in our home when it comes to time use, content use, uh, who you're communicating to and when. And at that point there, that's where the child has to know what the rules are for their home. And going out from that point, any other group, whether it be school or sports-based, they have to follow rules that either the team adheres to or the students adhere to. Jesse Miller, I know schools are aware of this uh, in elementary school and now in high school. My son came home with a permission form, at least acknowledging that uh, pictures can turn up. Um, But there has to be more that teachers and uh, schools do to make sure that identities are kind of protected. What do you recommend for them? You know what, media literacy across the board of British Columbia is actually very effective in the sense of the content. It's where, it's where we put it into practice. And so we are still having arguments about regulating tech in the classroom and uh, whether or not teachers should be the ones taking the lead. And the reality of it is the classroom is a great place to open up good conversation about how we communicate in these media spaces and how we prioritize our communications using mobile devices. But it is reflective, unfortunately, of our society and how we sometimes think that the tool itself is a distraction. The majority of us use these tools congruently with our workday and our personal lives. We need young people knowing that the tool itself is what it is. It's a communication device. It's not necessarily a priority for one conversation, but it can be for multiple. And so if the onus goes on to schools, then we follow the school's lead. But if parents want to have a voice in that space as well, they have to work with the schools to understand what the expectations are and then lead by example from ourselves. If you are a person texting and driving, your kid's watching you text and drive. If you're watching a movie while scrolling through Facebook, you're not focusing on the task at hand. And it's very, very, very uh, ridiculous to assume that kids are going to follow an expectation if they don't see it being led by example. Jesse, you're always a great source and have good information. Does mediatedreality.com have any tips? A couple. And again, your listeners are always free to reach out and and follow the conversation. And the reality of it is we have so many great tools, but if parents are looking for the best when it comes to addressing the issues that really are, are concerning, go to Erase BC. Erase BC has a number of great resources for parents and kids 
to address issues when it comes to the fear, the online exploitation, or just the regulation pieces when it comes to using tech. It's a great resource. Thanks so much, Jesse. Thanks, Bruce. for spending this portion of the afternoon with us. I'm Bruce Claggett in for Jill. A little bit of a heads up and a warning of sorts, especially if you have sensitivities to stories about violence involving animals. That being said, we'll go on and talk about this one. It is shocking. Happened back in October of 2021. A 34-year-old wildlife guide near Tofino went into his house, retrieved a bow and arrow, as well as a crossbow, and killed a mother bear and her cub in a tree near his house. He struck the cub with the arrow, injuring and causing it to fall from the tree. He then shot a number of arrows at it, injuring it. The bear tried to escape, but he chased and killed it. Then he killed the cub and hid it on his property. What followed was different stories about what happened and what didn't happen. And ultimately, this ended up before a judge. And that's why we're going to be talking about this story, because the judge said that sometimes a fine is not enough. That's right. Sometimes a fine is not enough. And in this case, Ryan Owen Miller, a wildlife guide in Tofino, received 30 days in jail behind bars and $5,500 in fines for each of two bears in a case where we usually, these type of cases, don't see any jail time at all. Is this the direction we're going in? Is it the right direction? Well, let's bring in animal rights lawyer and adjunct professor at UBC's Allard School of Law, Victoria Sharaf. Victoria, thanks so much for being with us. Certainly. You know, when you hear something like this, uh, the first thing that comes to my mind is jail time. Wow. This is, you know, a case where you would certainly think fines are in the offing, but not jail time. What do you make of it? Well, I think the court really took a very close look at this case. This was not something that the court decided to do lightly when they um, provided um, uh, this sentence. Uh, I'm going to quote directly a short quote from the judgment that tells you what what exactly the judge was saying. He says, I accept that fines in the past may have been enough to deter specific individuals, but I question whether the history of charging a fee or giving a fine to offenders has had much of a general deterrent effect. I conclude that if the courts are to support the principle that we must preserve and conserve Canada's wildlife habitat, sometimes a fine is not enough. You know, it's interesting because in this case, Judge Alexander Wolf, I guess, is taking a look at society and there are different groups of people in society, like it or not. Some are able to afford fines and maybe think it's just the cost of doing business. I'm not saying that is linked to this case. I'm just talking about how you would uh, look at sentencing in this. And sometimes, uh, you know, you have to go for something else. But, uh, you know, 30 days in jail. Have you heard of this type of thing happening before in B.C.? I have not heard about um, a case like this before in B.C. I have heard of jail time being given in other provinces. Like I can think of a time when a judge in New Brunswick ordered 156 days in jail for another individual um, for wildlife crimes. So 
it's not that they don't happen, but when we're looking at the BC Wildlife Statute, which is the applicable statute here in this case, um, they are allowed, as, as the court is allowed to do on a first conviction, a fine of not more than 100000 or to a term of imprisonment not exceeding one year, or both. So it's within the statute to do, of course it is. Well, you know, the court wouldn't have done it otherwise, but just most people probably don't know that there is also um, there is um, the ability to have kind of creative sentences. And sometimes um, you need to apply these principles um, because of the aggravating factors in, in this case. And there were several aggravating factors, um, as you indicated in the, in the fact pattern at the beginning about, you know, killing a, a mother bear who was lactating. That's, you know, the, the sow who was killed and her baby cub of probably under two years old. There was a lot of evidence brought to bear on this case. And importantly, there was also Indigenous um, opinions provided. And I, and I find that extremely important and informative. Also, we should mention that uh, if the sow was lactating, that could mean, or probably does mean, there are other cubs, and they just weren't around at this point. Um, so I think the judge did take that into account. Uh, indigenous um, uh, ramifications in this, what's that about? Well, so what's happened is um, the B.C. government, as part of uh, Truth and Reconciliation, has has indicated that what they want to do is they want to um, get in line um, and be um, in, in alignment, I should say, rather, with um, principles of reconciliation. And so what happened in this case is cultural significance of black bears and information um, about um, black bears in Indigenous cultures by the um, by a particular um, First Nation that I, I'm sure I'm not going to say the name right, uh, Tlaquit First Nation was brought in, and my apologies for saying the name wrong. Um, but what, what they talked about there is that the culturally significant role in the West Coast First Nations culture, and of course of First Nations cultures across Canada, that these animals represent the qualities of courage and strength and represent the sacredness of these attributes. So there was... You know, two Indigenous people uh, came forward, uh, elders who spoke about the importance of black bears culturally. And then we also had a wildlife veterinarian come forward. This case was very thoroughly, thoroughly investigated and um, four days of trial. So, so I think, you know, exploring the coexistence principles and the need for education and deterrence um, were, were guiding factors in this case. I wonder what the ramifications will be uh, when you have somebody that's Indigenous that also breaks the law. Is that something that uh, would still apply? Well, that's that's a different case um, than this one, than the case we're talking about in the Miller instance, the case of Mr. Miller in this case. Um, But there could also be alternative um, sentencing structures and um, it, it might not happen in a court. It might happen in a different way. But I do know that um, the um, elder Dr. Williams said, if someone were to kill a Sims, not out of necessity, they would be held accountable. That, those are exact words from paragraph 56 of the, the sentencing reasons. In our system, in the B.C. court system, when you have a sentence like this, is this going to set a precedent for future sentences 
Do you expect that? I think it will. I think it has the potential to do that. It could still be subject to appeal because of the period of time that we're looking at. Um, But I think this definitely has the potential to be precedent setting. And for me, as an animal lawyer for over 20 years, what's really exciting about this is it might signal a new direction of how important wild animals are seen by the courts. It's not just like, oh, you just killed you just killed some animals. No big deal. Move on. Pay a fine. In fact, the court is saying, you know, this is an individual who really didn't take responsibility. He tried to actually um, hide the bodies. And so, you know, the thing about wildlife crimes is they are notoriously difficult to detect and very easy to do. So when we see the court stepping up and saying, you know, Animals are incredibly important here. Um, and, and this person has been, as he said, you know, basically disrespectful to preservation and conservation of wildlife. Um, I, think, I think we're going in a new direction. Oh, definitely. But one that I have to wonder, is this going to be a case where you have almost like a different feeling of people guided differently? Well, the feeling might exist now in rural areas as opposed to urban areas when they end up before a judge quite often that judge is not even going to be uh, someone that lives in a more remote location do you see that playing any sort of factor here i think the provincial court is aware of that and they um, do definitely try to assign um, judges who are part of that community where where they can Um, Of course, there's differences between rural and urban. I'm with you on that. Um, But they always, I think, go out of their way to try to have a court who understands the community. Um, And I think that, you know, I don't I don't see an unevenness in the application of the law coming out because of that. I think that there has been um, an even handed way of, of saying this is what the legislature has said is the law. And also the case law was looked at in detail, including unreported cases. So this contextual analysis um, that's required in wildlife cases, I think, was done. And, you know, we're talking about intentional killing of black bears who are not posing a threat. Um, You know, and these are sacred animals. Um, So, you know, I'm quite certain jail time is, is really reserved as a last resort, as in very serious cases like this one, where the court found that, that Miller's moral blameworthiness was found to be exceptionally high. Yeah, indeed. We're talking with Victoria Sharoff, animal lawyer and adjunct professor at UBC's Allard School of Law. Victoria, as a legal uh, scholar, when you take a look at this and possibly the need for more research uh, coming up, what areas are you interested in when it comes to wildlife? What uh, what areas are open that we need to do a little bit more looking at? Well, I think the number one thing that we can do in this province and across the country for wildlife is listen to Indigenous elders. I cannot stress how important that is. It's proved to be so valuable And I'm so excited that we're finally doing that, that we're building in these requirements into the legislation where we're seeing how much wisdom is coming from from people who understand this for millennia. And, you know, you know, this is where the Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People and the B.C. government are are working together because of the the um, 
the amendments to the BC Wildlife Act to re- to support reconciliation, to increase collaboration with Indigenous people. I really think that's the number one thing we can do in this province, and as I say, across the country. And we we will begin to see a deeper understanding about how important wildlife is, and on 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 what level, um, like we've never seen before. We've been talking about the courts, but ultimately it comes down to the rules that are set by the minds that are uh, behind the political lawmaking as the politicians uh, in the legislature or in the House of Commons. Do you see any desire to go in that direction to update any of the rules? Well, certainly I think we should always be reviewing our legislation in relation to animals and wild animals in particular in this instance, um, you know, I'm, I'm a big proponent of coexistence and, and importing those principles into the legislation. Like we saw, as you know, in 2017, the grizzly hunt um, came to an end. I think that was very progressive. Um, so we, we've seen pockets of where we start listening to um, knowledge keepers. And we, we understand that what was okay 100 years ago in our law is not. A lot of people will say we need to update our criminal code in terms of um, animal cruelty as well. So there, there are plenty of areas um, uh, to, to work on. There's no shortage for sure. And it's, it's a situation where every time, as I say, just because I've been doing animal law for so long, that when I see um, what appears to me to um, show that animals and their cases and their lives are being taken a lot more seriously, not just as a group, but as individual animals, like they really went out of their way to identify through the forensic necropsy yeah. about this this animal, right? And saying, you know, this this sow was shot from a probably like a tree from an angle. You know, they really there was it. an investigation years ago. I don't think there would have been one. Quite possibly, quite possibly, to this level and four days of trial. You know, I mean, that's the other thing in this case that this individual, this this offender did not plead guilty. Um, And that's also a big factor here. Um, The Crown put together a cogent argument, and it was so good that the the court decided to append it to its reasons for sentence. That doesn't always happen. Um, So it tells you that this case was really, really investigated thoroughly and completely, and um, I think that's that's really an important factor in it as well. Well, thanks for talking with us about this. And uh, I think it's an interesting one to watch, not even for this case, but for, as you explained, what it might mean for Indigenous input into different cases when it comes to wildlife and also animal rights on the whole in the future. Victoria, thank you. You're very welcome. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.